Hi, it's Mike Metcalf. I want to talk about capitalism, or rather capital, and in the way of these series of podcasts, I want to keep it at a personal level, it, what Oscar would do, our hero, what you would do, an individual understanding of capital. So, in the podcast about poverty, I said a fairly healthy, normal person would, in their teenage years, develop a skill of some sort. That could be anything from a doctor to a welder to a musician uh, to an accountant, and they would use this to make a living. So let's assume Oscar has got a job of some sort. He works for a company. So after a number of years coming out of university and and getting whatever skill it was, let's say he did um, business studies or something, he's been working with this company for five years. Now, if he stops and looks at his life, he's brought a house, he's got a car and furniture, and a little bit in his bank account, and of course he's got a mortgage. So the definition of capital is assets minus liabilities. If you ask an accountant to define capital, that's what it is. So Oscar's assets are, well, his house, his furniture, his car, that sort of thing, and whatever money he's got in his bank account. Now, we don't normally count his friends in the strict financial capital calculation, although we understand that his friends and networks are an important part of his capability, but we don't normally count those. But notice we don't also distinguish between whether it's cash in the bank or it's bricks and mortar or, or it's furniture or it's a, I don't know, a motorbike that he's got. It doesn't matter. If he's got a, a monetary value, then it can be an asset. Now, the liabilities would be his mortgage, debts, outstanding bills. So you add up his assets, take away his liabilities... Now, as he goes to work, he will accumulate more and more capital. This is a point that Thomas Sal makes, is that when you leave university, you're in the bottom 10% of the richest people in, let's say, the West or the world. But as you work, and you go to work, and you collect money, and you, as long as you don't waste it, you don't, your liabilities don't become more than your assets... You spend your money on buildings that appreciate rather than flash cars that depreciate. You'll end up with more and more capital. So by the end of your life, as you retire with a lot of money in your super ann and savings, hopefully you'll end up in the top 10% of, of the country in terms of wealth. You will accumulate capital. This is capitalism. It allows you to accumulate capital. If you were in a situation where you didn't own your house, it was rented, or if you somebody had nationalised all housing and land and, and everything else, then you wouldn't accumulate capital. If, if you were living off government handouts, then you wouldn't accumulate capital. One of the keys there to capitalism is ownership. When I did the calculation of assets minus liabilities, I was working out what Oscar owned. If he didn't own it, I mean, he was just borrowing it or it was given to him, then it wouldn't be his asset. 
and it, you know liabilities it wouldn't be his liability if he didn't own it it has to be things you own and so this is why ownership is such an important part of capitalism if people don't have clear ownership then they don't have clear capital you might say well oscar's wife was entitled to half of it that, that's true you might uh, say that there's certain liabilities on the house he lived, lived in a community which understood that the community partly owned the house, then it wouldn't be owned by Oscar and therefore it wouldn't be part of his capital. A system of capital accumulation assumes a very clear understanding of ownership. This is why you could see that you had to move from an indigenous lifestyle where land was community-owned and properties and houses and, and even stock was community-owned to where it was individually owned. I think even in England, where they um, closed down all the public spaces and put fences around them, it was a very important step because it had to be clear who owned this paddock. If it's owned by a community, then it's hard to do capital accumulation. And I think in indigenous communities where they don't have clear concepts of ownership, you're going to have problems of capital accumulation. Growth, if you like, economic growth. My understanding in communist China was that the land was community-owned and people went out and farmed it, but they weren't very keen to work harder than the average person because when all the farming goods, you know, the crops, were brought in, they were equally distributed. It meant the person who worked the least got the same amount as the person who worked the most. There's no incentive to work. It's a bit like that strange phenomenon where you go out to a restaurant and you just divide the bill by the ten people there. There's an incentive for people to game the system. The same with collective ownership. It's, it's people are they're either not going to work or they're going to sort of make the others pay. So identification of exactly what's yours, what's your own, what, it, what property you have, what land you have, what, whether this car and house and, and whatever is yours is an important part of the capitalist system. That is the system, the capitalist system, right? So... You, the inputs are ownership, work, money, if you like, which you convert into capital. You might borrow a million dollars at 5%, go away and invest it, run a business, which returns 10%, and you will accumulate capital, because you're, in the end, your assets will be greater than your liabilities. Notice I've purposely said this in terms of a regular person with a job. Because if Oscar went and started a business, in order to accumulate capital, he would need to have clear ownership of the business, be clearly responsible for the debts and liabilities and the assets. He would be, have to be able to trade with people freely and hopefully that he'd make a little bit of a profit in the sense he would, in the end, earn more than he spent on his business. So he would accumulate capital. In the same way, a person with wages, once they've paid all their bills at home, they would accumulate capital as well. 
But notice how you'll find those who support capitalism as an economic concept talk about free trade and free markets. If you own things, you also need to be able to go out and trade, go out and work, earn money in free markets in order to accumulate capital, in order to make your business work, or even if you go out for wages, you need to be able to look for better and better jobs, don't you? You don't want, when you're 15, the government to say, right, this is your job, you'll do it for life. You rather want to say, I'm, I've got a skill, I'm going to look around, I will go and work for this company, I'll go and work for that company, I'll now go and work for this company, I'll apply for that job. It's sort of trading your skill for income, exactly the same way as a person who opened a business uh, repairing lawnmowers. He'd want to look around for markets, he'd want to appeal to people, he'd want to say, well, I could also do motorbikes or whatever, without anybody saying, no, you can't, there's a regulation that stops you doing that. Regulations that limit your choices limit your ability to use your initiative to increase your capital. Of course, increasing your capital doesn't just mean your bank account gets bigger and bigger. That could be invested in a house, in a car, in a family, in a lifestyle. So hopefully your lifestyle gets better and better. You might spend it on education. You might, in fact, spend it on, on charitable works. We'll come back to that. I suspect one of the greatest motivations for accumulating capital is to pass it on to your children. A lot of people work very hard, farmers and uh, and many others work very hard to build some money up so first they can get their children a good education, a good start in life, perhaps a nice house or a slightly better house than they would have done, and then a little bit of money to to start their life at a, a slightly higher level than subsistence. So one of the attractions of accumulating capital is to be able to pass it on to somebody. This doesn't apply to everybody, but I think it's an underestimated motivator. So when they talk about taxing inheritance tax, if you accumulate capital and then die, people vote to say, well, we should take a lump of it and give it to poor people. You'll de- Again, you'll demotivate people in collecting capital, in working hard in the first place, if you think... Well, if I work hard, somebody's just going to come along and take it away from me, which is, of course, the argument against taxing the rich and giving it to the poor in excess. One understands that if one has been successful and raising capital over your lifetime, there is more and more obligation on you to help those who genuinely are unable to help themselves. Presented at this personal level... I would have thought it's hard for somebody to say capitalism is bad, I'm against capitalism. I'm against individuals over their lifetime trying to accumulate more and more capital to improve their lifestyle and the lifestyle of their children or their relatives or their friends or whatever it is they choose to spend their money on. When most people, I think, say they're against capitalism, I suspect they're saying they're against ugly industry or they're against economies of scale. There has been a lot of talk about oppression because Marx assumed that all capitalists have to oppress the workers. He did that dreadful polarisation, where I think it would be better to think of the workers as wanting to accumulate more and more capital. However, he put out the idea that capitalism oppresses the worker. 
I, I would have thought that if you believe in a personal development view of the world, that it's regulation and rules and lack of ownership regulation that would block people, would be the biggest oppressor. Offering people jobs, the chance to work, it doesn't sound as oppressive to me as having a regulation that says there's a government monopoly on this or no, you can't sell fruit and vegetables in this area or due to environmental regulations or heritage regulations, you cannot earn a living here doing that thing. It strikes me as more oppressive. Or there is a rule that says you cannot train in this or you cannot practice your trade in this area because of certain rules and regulations. Let me provide an example of uh, legislation restricting choices. So I worked in the university system, and the unions insisted, the teachers' unions, made up largely of professors and academics, insisted that everybody got paid by a level. So professors got this much and junior lecturers got this much. And that was the same throughout the university. So if you taught medieval French history, physics, or business studies, you got the same pay. That was a sort of union requirement. An alternative would be to say that if what was being taught was good for the economy or enabled people to earn a lot of money, that is, if doctors or business studies people taught stuff that would end up saving a lot of lives or creating a lot of wealth, they could be paid more than people who taught medieval French history, important as it is. Union regulation saying that people must be paid the same regardless of what is taught is a regulation or practice or that, that restricted choices and opportunities. At another level, the government defined universities in certain ways in Australia, meaning that it was impossible for a few people to start a boutique university very easily there were requirements that it have universities have a certain number of departments. It had a library and it had this, that and the other and it had to be accredited by the government. The bureaucracy made it very, very difficult for someone to say, well, we'll just open a business school or we'll just open a dentistry university over here that's not tied in or affiliated with the monopolistic 36 universities recognised by the states. That sort of regulation cuts down choices and opportunities. So it can be quite subtle sometimes. Oc health and safety or environmental requirements or indigenous consultation requirements, all of which can cut down choices. Now, of course, in some cases, it's important to have those, but we just have to be careful they don't get excessive. There were clearly, and still clearly is, people who work very, very hard with very little money. And we must do everything we can, everybody needs to do everything they can, to alleviate that situation. When we think about some of the sweatshops in China making, say, the iPhone, it's often hard for people in the West to watch people work so hard for so little money. But, of course, if you were worse off before you got that job, you'd be grateful for that job. So I think some people work in sweatshops in order to improve themselves. It's like the Industrial Revolution. I, I 
Why did people go and work in the dreadful mill towns under pretty awful conditions? It's because the conditions they came from were most likely worse. Agriculture might look pleasant if you stand out there and look at a wheat field, but people who have to work in the fields, work in the weather, subject to crop failures due to bad weather, where their children were starving, and the work was very repetitive and isolated. You had to live in farms quite widely spread from everybody. To go to the city and get regular work and regular money for you and your family was most likely attractive. One assumes if there was a better alternative, they would have chosen it. And there's, again, back to the capitalist point about choice. Said ownership's important, deregulation or lack of regulation is important, but allowing people choices, not having rules that say you must work here or you can do this or you can't do that. That includes work practices rules, saying you can't go to university unless you've passed this test and you can only take this test when you're 12 years old. Anything that cuts down people's options is stopping them from accumulating capital or having choices about how better to accumulate their own capital given their own circumstances. Now again, I'm not, of course, advocating there shouldn't be any rules and regulations. Of course, if people shouldn't be allowed to do things that upset and harm and disadvantage other people. We live in a community and there needs to be rules about how one person cannot take advantage of other people. However, offering them a job that's quite hard and low paid, take it or leave it, I'm not forcing you to take that job, it's, it's not like you're conscripting the army. You give people a choice, really, saying, well, they might say, well, it's Hobson's choice, I can either starve to death or work hard for a pittance, but there is a choice there. Then one assumes that if they do work hard, one hopes that there are opportunities open for them to progress. If there are social and and regulatory barriers on them progressing, then that would be a bad thing as well. And there has in the past been all sorts of religious, social and monopoly barriers. People were often forced into trades, forced to work in certain areas, or they had to ask permission of the landowner if they could open a shop or if they could go into a business or do something. So there are these barriers to entry, the barriers to choice. And I think breaking those down has been a very important part of the 20th century. Classically, of course, it's saying that the women or blacks can't do certain jobs or can't go certain places, which is dreadful. It's just cutting down their choices and their options to accumulate capital at a rate that suits them. Just to emphasise, what are the alternatives to my capital system? Well, of course, socialism and communism and dictators and kings and monopolies are the alternatives, the competition to capitalism, where either you say, well, nobody's allowed to own anything, or you're not allowed to accumulate capital, or somebody landed gentry says I own the land I'll lease it to you if you work hard you can have a few potatoes so that there's no way of somebody accumulating capital under the legal and social system then that would be 
the opposite of what I'm talking about with the capitalist system. Going back to the capitalism is ugly, typically if someone says I'm against capitalism, they'll show you a picture of, of some ugly oil field or a factory or disused factory or some such, while driving around in their car, using their mobile phone or eating fast foods. Aeroplanes, roads, schools and so on, which all was sourced from those ugly environments. You can see a little bit of a history here where you've got the landed gentry looking over their pastures, got cows and sheep and wheat and and whatever, saying this is all very idyllic and um, there might be people starving to death in little cottages, but it it, it visually very stunning. Then somebody in the Industrial Revolution would say, well, I'm going to buy some machinery for weaving cotton that's come in from overseas but I, I need a machine, I need a shed, and it's, and it's hard, noisy work, and the, the buildings don't look very nice compared to a few sheep in the paddock or a few cows. I need power to run this because originally there was water power, which looked quite quaint, but eventually one had to have coal power to make a profit at this business of weaving and uh, making cloth. And of course... There would then be a accumulation, I think originally around water sources, but then as people, well, you've got your factory there that does this, I'll put my factory there that does something else, and we'll put them both on the same transport and send them out, and we need a transport hub, and we need people in houses. It wouldn't look as pretty. It might be ordinary people accumulating wealth, but it's not as idyllic to look at, so... You could see why originally the landowners would not like the look of these industrial towns and they also wouldn't like the fact that there were people working there that were getting stronger and stronger and richer and richer. And of course eventually they've challenged the wealth and power of the landed gentry which made them even less pleasant to look at. And turning it around, if you use the products of these factories if you eat go to the supermarket you can get food and if you you know use your car and your mobile phone and use metals uh, then you're going to have mines factories foundries unpleasant looking pieces of equipment producing that stuff big ugly metal looking things it sort of goes with manufacturing and it's very unfortunate And I think we should put a lot of effort into designing nicer-looking factories, oil refineries and power stations, but it's a fact that you need them if you're going to use the products of the modern world. So whilst one would agree that ugly things should be avoided, that power stations look ugly whereas wind turbines sort of look pretty... To confuse this with capitalism, I think, is to sort of miss the point. It's a design issue. These things should be better designed. I often think electricity, you know, substations that you see around the city are very badly designed. Uh, Same with radio towers. And a lot of factories are very badly designed. They're they're an eyesore. Um, People have, have been allowed to get away with bad design. But that's not saying... The capitalism, people trying to make and sell goods in order to accumulate their capital, 
plus people going to work, getting wages to accumulate their capital, is a bad thing. You need to be clear about what it is you're actually objecting to. Are you objecting to accumulation of capital or are you objecting to bad urban design or industrial design? Is the problem how to make a factory or an oil refinery as pretty as a university or a town hall, then it's a different issue to object to people accumulating capital. Let me go back to the issue of size, or rather bring up the issue of size, economies of scale. One of the other factors that get sort of wound in with capitalism is a dislike for very large things, very large processes, very large factories. People like the craft world, where there's a few people working together in a a room, whereas a lot of the hatred of capitalism comes from when you see very large processes, like very large mines or very large factories or production, like the car assembly floors. The size is something that is upsetting to people. In many industries, there are economies of scale, meaning if you make lots of them, you can make them cheaper than somebody who only makes a few of them. This is true in the car industry. If you're building a a car assembly factory, the bigger it is, the cheaper it will be. And the same with farming now. The idea of little farms and one person plodding around It's just inefficient compared to very large farms. Uh, The same is true of shipbuilding. It used to be that you could have quite a small area beside the river, almost with a wall around it. Everybody go in and they would build a ship. You'd bring the stuff into this small shipyard area and build a ship. Now you need, because of the economies of scale, that if you can sort of build bits of the ship, say, further away from the river and and slowly move them on and then build them up and move them on. So you have a sort of production line that might start, you know, 100 miles out from the river and the land towards the the river or the sea becomes a sort of production line. It now looks like a massive shipbuilding area, which becomes not very pleasant to look at. But the ships are much cheaper, they're quicker to build, and therefore there's a progress towards these economies of scale. I think the mining one, is a coal mining one, is a clear example. The, the old images of people, you know, a bunch of men going in a shaft, going down, almost on their hands and knees, picking the coal, putting it in a little wagon and pushing it on rails back up and it goes to the surface. How does that compare with... You see those Australian coal mines now that look like an unbelievably vast hole in the ground and you've got trucks with tyres as big as a house, automated, you know, pulling coal out of the ground on a massive scale. The coal is much cheaper, but it's, it's much more of an eyesore. It's the same with Coca-Cola or Mars bars, that if you make them by the million... You can make them very, very cheaply. Um, There are economies of scale all over the place. So if you're against capitalism, you you might be getting it confused with economies of scale. I I expect you're not against economies of scale, but I I suspect it is wise to be against 
very, very big things, conglomerates or very, very large banks that are too big to fail or factories that are absolutely massive. I think it is scary and it is unpleasant and most likely unwise for things to get too big. I think if if conglomerates and monopolies and were were monitored for size, it would most likely be a good thing. But then you you will get caught in economies of scale. Oil refineries are another example. As some oil refineries are simply unproductive because they were built too small. People in other places have just made them larger. There's cheaper fuel comes out of them, and it and it forces the others to close. But massive oil refineries look a complete mess and if anything happens to them there's a catastrophic impact on the community and country. I suspect size is the problem rather than capitalism. An interesting, it's not really an aside here is it, but it's a point that during the bombing in the Second World War a lot of factories were dispersed and decentralized rather than having one big factory that somebody could come over and bomb and cause problems it was an easy target a lot of the manufacturing had to be broken into little operations in sheds all over the place and then the pieces brought together it meant that you didn't get massive factories everywhere which was visually preferable whether it's economically preferable i don't know but it it raises the issue that it's not always necessary, and I think people who make aeroplanes and cars know this, it's not always necessary to have a very large factory where everything goes on under one roof, because that can be environmentally damaging, it can damage communities and areas, it can look very ugly. A decentralised approach to manufacturing where really you could maintain economies of scale, but it's dispersed, might be preferable to people. We need to talk as well about inheritance. One of the things that upsets people about capitalism, they get the impression that, well, and I think it's a realistic one, that certain people, if they're born into wealthy families get a lot of privilege over people who were born into poor families. So therefore, for example, there should be a inheritance tax, a sort of death duties, to slow down this this bigger and bigger gap that's likely to occur. If, if, if you can accumulate capital and give it to your children, and they can accumulate and give it to their children, you're going to get a separation from somebody who might be born to you know, very sick parents or people who've got alcohol problems or have lost all their money due to some unforeseen economic factor and their children suffer. And So how do you even it out a bit? Uh, because there's extensive taxation systems that, that try and do that. One of the arguments about inheritance or death duties is that you will demotivate people uh, to, to actually accumulate wealth, which is in nobody's interest. You want people working as... as hard as they want to, to accumulate whatever capital they want, because often that generates goods and services and work for other people. Better a community where people are working to accumulate wealth than one where they're not. And this is why I think it's important that there be very good health and schools for children, 
including very good skills training colleges. I think a lot in the West, less so in Europe, but often in, in other parts of the modern Western world, teenagers don't get well trained in a skill, don't even understand that they need a skill in order to earn a wage. And that one of the, the best things that people can do to help people, the best forms of charity, is to train people in a skill that they can then use to create wealth. As opposed to a charity where you just give people money for existing. Of course, they do need money to exist, but better to give work or skills training than sit-down money. However, more important than bashing rich people to improve the lives of the children of poor people, it might be better to focus on what you can do for the poor people to get them educated, healthy and well-trained. Of course, the, the other point to be borne in mind is that wealthy people are internationally mobile and a lot of these laws and taxations and systems are nationally developed. So it's very hard to to tax a rich person because, as they do, they move their money or themselves overseas. Why would they put up with an excessive amount of taxation? There has to be a feeling that the taxation is fair. I suspect it's more important than, than done to say, well, everybody in the country should give 10% of their income to a common pool, taxes, to help those who need help to build the safety net, as well as community infrastructure like roads and things. But it's not very clear what the what percentage is the correct percent. There just seems to be a feeling that the rich should pay more than the poor without being clear what is a, a sensible amount that the rich should pay. And then, it, and then it does get more complicated because if a rich person builds a factory and gives lots of people jobs and they're taxed and they've got wages and income, there is a benefit to the community that should be acknowledged to some extent rather than somebody taking their money and putting it in a bank or disappearing and buying a luxury yacht with it. They have generated an opportunity for other people to create wealth and that's a good thing and it might be a mistake to sort of point at them and say they're unpleasant because they're rich and we should tax them to the hilt. Better perhaps to focus on why people are poor and not progressing than to focus on taking money from the rich. I was recently interested in the point being made by some Americans who are objecting to socialism and boiling it down to a statement that under capitalism you have to make something that's attractive to other people and sell it in order to accumulate your capital. Under socialism, the sort of metaphor is if you've got three people in a room and one of them's richer than the other two, they can have a vote to impose a tax on the rich person and take the money from the rich person and give it to the two poor people. The democratic process allows them to, to fleece, to undo the whole point of if people privately own things they can they can work hard without having a lot of people not pulling their weight around them 
as we talked about with the Chinese farms. But if you can, by voting, take money off people, that's a coercion, of course, and it seems strictly unfair and immoral to do so. So how then does this process of capital accumulation deal with those who are incapable of accumulating capital? Of course, it helps them. Hopefully at a more decentralised or community or family level, allow people to look after people who are sick or ill or disabled in their own family and community rather than having a national centralised system. In Australia we have this problem of remote towns being very poor and being heavily subsidised by the government who give, basically give out welfare money, uh, which is about the only way people can subsist in a modern lifestyle in the remote areas that were, were economically viable if you lived a third world lifestyle. Capitalism would, would say rather than give people money or food and housing and clothing, you would give them incentives to trade, to exchange, to develop skills. In other words, the old Protestant adage of you would give work rather than money as charity. It is trade, and if you prefer the word exchange, that gets people out of poverty. If you can make something and sell it for more than it costs you to make it, if you can accumulate capital, you're going to do better than somebody who's simply fed enough money to feed themselves and stop themselves from dying of heat or cold. The effort or the striving for improvement, I think, is a very, very important cultural variable. Again, I think it was something that the Protestants pushed very hard, that one would would try to die richer than when you were born, rather than just take enough money to get by. This attitude has led, I think, to you know the massive economic growth, and, and therefore scientific growth and, and health growth, that has occurred in the last 200 years. I think it's a concept that people need to grasp and, and, and apply. It doesn't always come naturally. And I think it's very much Protestantism and capitalism that you try to accumulate capital. And again, I'm not talking about large bank accounts. You accumulate capital in the way of having a bigger farm or more stock or more machinery or a bigger household which has got more people in it that you're helping adopt children or you might help some disabled people or look after old people with your accumulated wealth. This is your choice how you spend it. But this is an attitude that you should be trying to improve, continuous improvement is an important attribute or lifestyle, which is a concept embedded in capitalism. In a lot of the recent studies of happiness, which always strikes me as a bit of a strange research topic, I think increasingly people are finding having a sense of purpose, having a sense of continuous improvement, 
offers human beings a great feeling of happiness, as opposed to spending all your time drinking and singing and, and whatever. So just summarising for a second, I'm saying that the capitalist system, okay, one assumes that you are in a system of continuous improvement, that you are trying to make choices that enable you to to earn slightly more than you have to pay out in costs. It's really only going to work if you have clear understandings of ownership. If you don't have excessive amounts of regulation and social pressures or oppression or monopolies or groups of people in positions of power to restrict choices and an understanding that it's trade and exchange that creates wealth, not charitable acts. We very much have to look to the Catholics for their understanding of the way you get to heaven is through charitable acts, through good deeds. Um, And often that means giving away your wealth. Better perhaps to offer the, the Protestant solution, which was to offer work, not handouts, I suppose I'm talking about over the long term, if people have got an immediate problem of being hungry or cold, then of course they would need a handout. For longer term charity, we need to think more and do something to get something rather than here's some money, go sit down, have a drink. Aren't I a good person? Or you do nothing, lie on the ground going, I'm helpless. Someone says, oh dear, I'll clothe and feed you and look after you for nothing, because that makes me a good person, rather than saying, well, get up, do something, and I'll pay you. As, as a form of charity, it does seem preferable. Again, of course, there are going to be people who are in a situation where they can't help themselves, and they need all the help of other human beings to get by. If you believe the IQ findings that relates to what jobs people should do. The bottom end of the IQ suggests there are nearly 15% of people who don't have the cognitive abilities to survive in capitalism, in a system that says, improve your life, develop a skill. That's quite a large number, but it's an interesting benchmark. But as with the Chinese farmers, where, first of all, the land was shared and the crops were shared, it's, you're going to have strange behaviours, strange gaming behaviours. When you put in place incentives to work hard and benefit from that, to, to be able to feed your children better, give your children a nicer home and place to live, and maybe your sick relatives... Those incentives are very important and embedded in the capitalist system. I have been talking up to now about financial capitalism. You'll hear the term social capital, that is your network of friends and colleagues and people who can help you out and people that you hang out with, you enjoy the company of. In the same way as over your lifetime, you might want to build up your capital to improve your life and the life of your children and the people around you who are dependent on you. You might also want to build up your social capital. You might ask yourself, 
Am I developing networks of friends and colleagues and, and again, people who can help me with problems in my life as well as people that I just like to hang out with? So when we talk about capitalism, I, I think we should really be talking about financial and social capitalism. Continuous improvement in your life as continually improving both these aspects of capitalism. Let me end now by just quickly going through the list of concepts which we might use to reflect on a system. So we have this system called capitalism where you try and improve your capital and social wealth during your lifetime. You do it by an independent means. You might go to work for wages, you might uh, invest, you might start a business several other things you might do, but you take it upon yourself rather than directed by and looked after by a government welfare. So already we, there we have the counter-arguments. Should the government do it? Should a centralised authority do it? Or should you take the responsibility on yourself? And I think the capitalism system says, I largely want to take it on by myself, but I'd like there to be a safety net. This system at a national level is de definitely anti-fragile because the markets rather like disruption. There's an opportunity to be made from creative destruction. The invention of new products and services is a constant process, an important process for everybody getting richer, healthier and, and living better lives. So you'd have to say it thrives on, on disruption, on, on being anti-fragile. It's a system that really evolved in the 17th and 18th century. I, I expect the early days of the East India Company was a classic example, or the early days of America, where people went you know, to run businesses to catch fur or, and to come back and, and make money for themselves as individuals, rather than these were projects designed and managed by the, the monarchy, uh, for them to get money, uh, suddenly with the organisation of capital by the Dutch largely, I think, and then the English took it on, enabled people to go abroad, trade, come back, make money, uh, be it the spices or tea or, or bananas or anything else from world trade. They took huge risks. And you'd have to say in the evolution of this, although colonisation has some bad patches in it, most of the countries that were affected by British colonisation and therefore you know, developed trade links and the capitalist system are now better off than the countries that didn't adopt it. And generally speaking, capitalist countries are richer and better off than socialist company, countries. Again, I'm talking in very general terms and, and whole of population statistics here. Indeed, if you look at Venezuela, that was, it's gone backwards. It had all the hallmarks of a capitalist democracy and it gets a new president who goes around nationalising things, giving people jobs dependent on the price of oil, uh, centralised planning and organisation. And of course, when the price of oil went down, the whole thing collapsed. Private capitalism had not been encouraged. The concepts in use for capitalism are continuous improvements, 
free markets, ownership, economies of scale, clever industrial design, self-responsibility, and a lack of centralised regulation and authority. If people have an idea, capitalism says, have a go, we'll trust you. But if you do anything that's extremely dangerous or antisocial, we'll stop you. We don't give you permission every time you come up with an idea for change. We just let you get on with it. Okay, so that's enough now for this episode. The assignment would be to ask yourself whether your organisation or your own self are continuously improving in terms of raising capital and raising social capital, financial capital and social capital. Throughout your lifetime, are these likely to increase? If not, why not? And what might you do differently? Notice the perspective very much needs to be on you or your organisation. I think you should avoid a sort of blaming. It's the government's fault that I'm not doing well, or it's somebody else's fault that you're not doing well. It's a, capitalism is very much about your own personal responsibility and a very personal perspective on how you're going to make the best of what's been dealt you. In that sense, it's almost a stoic view of the world. Okay, thank you very much.